to, to start tonight, I thought we could use some teamwork and come up with what you would need or what we would need or want if we were going on a year-long trip to a place that we'd never been before. So just one at a time, going around, starting with Daniel. Something that you think we should definitely bring. Someone said, we're going on a trip. You'll be gone for a year. I'm not telling you where we're going. What's something that we would definitely need? A Bible. Good youth group answer. Medical supplies. Me- good, good lifeguard answer. Yeah. Clean clothes. Clean clothes. Good practical answer. Um, I made your list. <laughs> Me glasses. Your glasses. Augie? You don't know where you're going. You could be going to a desert island. Smart move. George? Duct tape. Fire starter. Fire starter. Smart. Money. Very smart. (laughs) Maybe one of the smartest of all. So we have non-perishable food, water. Advil and Zofran. Medical supplies. That's not medical supplies. That's drugs. Medical supplies, drugs, and the last thing we're putting in our trunk. That little believer. But because, one, I'd meet somebody. If I walk, I'd try to walk in my own self-righteousness. And Christ told us to go out, like, you know, go in twos and share it. And I would need somebody else to be able to call out my sins as I'm going to. And so... So at first I said, Daniel. And I was like, yeah. But then I was like, okay, wait. Um, if he's walking with the Lord, then Daniel. Mm-hmm. And if not, another fellow believer, because we're going to go share the word wherever we will. Yeah, so companionship, fellowship, mm-hmm. fellow believer. Specifically, yeah. fellow believer in Christ. A fellow believer in Christ. Food, nutritional supplies, first aid, clothes, money. glasses, money. Yep. Who would, if, that, if your car was loaded up with this, who would be willing to... Like, say, that's enough. I think we've got everything. The guys and Kaylee. Okay, well, I think we'll see, one thing we'll see in numbers tonight is that you can have all of that, all the supplies you think you need, and it still not be enough. You can have all of that, and it still not be enough. Some things will never be explained and like Ben <laughs> is one of those things. Yeah. <laughs> no explanation would be enough. Uh, so tonight we're studying numbers. This is a really basic question. If someone like Chris had not been here, uh, how would you answer, why are we studying numbers? can be a really obvious answer. Because we're going through the whole book of the Bible. Yes. We're going through the Bible, start to finish, And last week we were in Leviticus, so now we're in Numbers. Why are we going through the whole Bible? Jonah. Because why not? We just kind of like rolled the dice. What did you say? To do it while we're still living. To say we've done it once. Some things do have answers. Janae. Oh. Because 
Bible is one story about God's glory uh, by redeeming your people in Christ. Read that in front or the back. Amen. Yes, the Bible is one story about God's glory by redeeming a people in Christ. So we want to look at... (laughs) We want... Because that's true, and exactly what Lily said, all scriptures God read, we want to look at every part of that story to show that it's all related to that one main theme about God glorifying himself in Christ's salvation. We want to honor the fact that God's given us the whole Bible. Chris? Let me just say real quick... um, I'm glad I came for numbers because that's my favorite book because I'm an engineer and I have to do math a lot. So numbers is a really good book. A good? I was reading the book of numbers and I realized there's women in there. <laughs> there's women in there? No, yours wasn't. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I can find my number. It's nine. It's actually a very pro-woman book. Um, but we've got dad jokes. Date jokes. Lame jokes. Ben thinks they're lame jokes. We're we're going through, guys, we're going through the whole Bible to see how it's all related to that one main theme. It's all important. Uh, Did you know, some of you may know, there was a famous rock band in the 80s who, when they were coming to a new city for their show, they would give them a big binder. One of the rules in that binder was that in their dressing room, they wanted a bowl of M&M's with all the brown M&M's removed. Does anybody have any guesses why they would do that? No, they were not racist. Okay, good. Well, they might have been. I don't they, know. Were they talking about like it's not colored or what? I don't know what. No. No. Where did you have to dye the other one? Well, if like the brown ones aren't that good, they're just bubble chocolate. It's all chocolate. There's no flavor. Exactly. There were, it wasn't a preference. They wanted to see if the people read everything in the binder. And their shows were big and elaborate. And so if they missed that instruction, who knows what other safety things they could have missed. So if they got to the dressing room and there were brown M&Ms in there or there was no M&Ms, they would know they didn't read it all. What nerd band has M&Ms and safety rules? It was not a nerd band. It was Van Halen. <laughs> So if, if they thought it was important enough to pay attention to their whole instruction manual, how much more important should we see it to pay attention to the whole of Scripture, God's revealed word to us? Every part of the Bible is from God. Every part of the Bible points us to Christ. I gladly admit that some parts of the Bible are more important for us to know for our salvation than others. Lord willing, you'll be reading the Bible for the rest of your life, and you'll be able to see through that study, through the rest of your life, every part is from God. Every part teaches us something about human nature. Every part's related related to Jesus the Savior. And so that makes the whole Bible relevant to us because it's talking about God, salvation in Christ, and our human nature. So a review of where we've been so far before we get into numbers. That's why we're doing what we're doing. What have we done? We started in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. We spent three lessons looking at those three chapters. Uh, what does God do in Genesis 1? God creates the world. Uh, who specifically does God create? In, in the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, we get to zoom in on this. George. Man. And? Woman. Yes. Man and woman. 
And when we studied that, we saw that there were some similarities and some differences between man and woman. What's one similarity? What's one thing that man and woman share in common? Jonah. They were created in God's image. Yes, man and woman created in God's image. One's not more the image of God than the other. What's one difference? One difference between man and woman. No one knows any difference. There's no difference between men and women. Between your mom and your dad. Between you and a brother or sister. The woman has long hair. Women have long hair. <laughs> That's true. I have longer hair than she does. In general, men have long, have shorter hair than women. Uh, one other, one other difference. In general, women tend to be like the more compassionate of the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we saw that it, uh, men and women's nature accords with the roles God's given them. Uh, Eve was made in the garden. She brings life forth from herself. She's naturally more nurturing than Adam. Adam and man are stronger physically, but also are be called to strongly protect their families, their wives, their children. So men and women have different roles assigned to them. We talked about that. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. What happens in Genesis 3? Major event in the Bible. Creation, major event. This event is major. The fall? The fall. Adam and Eve sin. They take the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and sin enters the world. What else happens in Genesis 3? There's a promise of whom? Right after the fall, God does what? He promises? That someone will come and rescue them from their sin. Yes. One of Eve's offspring will crush the head of the serpent. Christ is promised in Genesis 3. Great job, George. We move through the rest of Genesis. We saw the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, how each one of those helps move the story along towards Jesus. Yes, Kaylee? Exodus 17, you didn't hear he will immediately break his head, right? Yep, exactly. That's Genesis 3. And then in the rest of Genesis, we see the patriarchs leading to Jesus. Not only are they Jesus' physical grandparents, but they're also uh, types of Jesus that point us to something in their life looks a lot like Jesus's. So uh, Joseph, for instance, suffers unjustly and good comes out of it. Jesus suffers unjustly and good comes out of it. We saw how that works in five different men from Genesis we saw in Exodus, God saves his people out of Egypt. He gives them the law. Uh, and then in Leviticus last week, we saw God establish this pattern of sacrifice and atonement. People can draw near, sinful people can draw near to God only by sacrificing, by making an atonement for their sin. Now we come to the book of Numbers. It's not an exciting title, as Chris pointed out, but it is an exciting book. It covers 40 years in the wilderness. Where we've been so far from Exodus chapter 3, all the way through Exodus, all the way through Leviticus, to the first several chapters in Numbers, 
covers a little over a year. And now the rest of the book of Numbers will cover about 37 years. So all of Leviticus takes place at the base of the mountain. That's where Numbers starts. And then they go off wandering. Uh, the book starts with counting. That's why it's called Numbers. The, the Hebrew name of the book is In the Wilderness. But Numbers starts off by taking a census. Everyone who's 20 years old and up gets counted. Everyone who can fight. Every male who's 20 years old and up. They're getting ready for battle. They're getting ready to go into the promised land that God has given them. They've set up the temp, the, the, the tabernacle in which to worship God. They start temp, the tabernacle worship, and then they take it down and set off to the promised land. That's how the book starts. So God's presence is with them. And God moves ahead of them in a cloud. He brings them to the edge of the promised land. This is what they've been waiting for. All the anticipation for the, from the first three and a half books of the Bible have been building up to this. The people have been waiting for this for 430 years, generation after generation, reminding their grandchildren of the promise and then dying. Generations waiting for God to deliver them, not seeing it. Now it's happened. He's brought them to the promised land. They're there. God's been faithful to his promise. And he wants to encourage his people with more than just his word. He's kind enough to send spies or scouts into the land to bring back evidence that this is actually a good land. This is actually going to happen. So they do that. They send out spies. Spies go. They check things out. And they come back. And everyone's standing there ready to hear their report. So open your Bibles to Numbers 13. We're going to look at Numbers 13 and then mostly 14 for the rest of the evening. I'm going to start reading in 1330 and read the first paragraph in chapter 14 as well. So they've returned from the land. Caleb's one of the spies. And this is what he tells the people of Israel. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out, spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who, who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. The spies are afraid to go, so they lie and give a bad report. And the people are afraid to go, too. So they willingly, they gladly believe them. 
they grumble and complain about Moses and Aaron. They want to ignore God's promises. They want to ignore God's purpose for doing all of this anyway. And they ignore God's commandments. They want to go back to slavery in Egypt. Well, what's God's response? How does God respond to them? Uh, Skip ahead in Numbers 14 to verses 22 and a few following. This is what God says. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. Skip down to 27. How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as you live, declares the, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and all of your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. What's God's response? He punishes them by not letting them go into the land. He sentences them to death in the wilderness. It's a long, slow, 40-year-long death sentence. All the people that were counted at the beginning, the name, where we get the name numbers from, all of them will perish in the wilderness. I read this week that if you do the math, it's about seven or eight people every hour for the 40 years that they're in the wilderness are being buried. It's just a constant reminder of death, a constant reminder of their rebellion against the Lord. This situation might look kind of crazy to us, we would say, why don't they just believe? Why don't they just go in? They're standing there. God's promised us. Why don't they just go in? But that's the point of the book of Numbers. Numbers teaches us that you can have everything from God. You can have God's word. You can have God's law. You can have God's provision. He provides manna and quail and protection to these people in the, in the wilderness. You can hear God's promises and it still not be enough. You can have all that from God, and it's just not enough for you. What do the Israelites do with all these blessings God's given them? They complain. They doubt God, and they rebel against God. But we do the very same thing. We can enjoy all these blessings that we have from God, and even more. We have more of God's word than Israel had in that day. We have better lives than the Israelites. They, were, they lived harsh lives in slavery. They, lived, they had to wander in the desert. We have cushy lives. God's blessed us. But it's not enough. And we, just like them, like to complain. And grumbling, we saw, grumbling or complaining, God takes very seriously. So I'd like to hear one or two people, maybe three, share something that you like to complain about. To be honest and share something you like to complain about. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Chris. I like to complain about when the Eagles lose. <laughs> complain about when things don't go your way. Yeah. George. Um, so I like to complain about, like, my life. About your life. Yeah, we complain about a lot of things in our lives. Big, our lives, small, the Eagles losing. Jonah. Uh, I think a lot of people wouldn't see that as complaining around here. <laughs> What's so bad about complaining? Janae. What's wrong with discontent? Uh, uh, <laughs> I think you're right. Oh. being thankful to God. Ultimately, it's not being thankful to God. Grumbling, complaining is serious. If you look in verse 2, you'll see that the people grumble. God, talking about those same people in verse 23, calls them those who despised me. He sees grumbling as despising him. Complaining, even about small things, is actually complaining about God. Ultimately, we're complainers, like Janae said, because we're dissatisfied with God. We don't think he's been kind to us. We don't agree with how he's ruling over our lives. We don't think that he's actually good and loving and gracious. If we did, we wouldn't complain. You can think about it. If you had perfect parents, like literally perfect in every way, it would be silly to complain about them. They would be perfect. We would have nothing to complain about. We do have a perfect Father, God. And the Bible says that every good gift is from God. So every time we complain, we're actually complaining about the giver of the gift. We're not just complaining about what we have. We're complaining about the giver of the gift. Israel isn't just complaining about their situation. They're complaining about the person who put them in that situation. Not Moses, but God. Every time you complain, you're not just complaining about your situation. You're complaining about God. As we sung earlier tonight, as we have sung earlier tonight, instead of complaining about God, Christians complain to God. We'll all be faced with hardships. So no one's saying that life in the desert for Israel was easy. No one's saying that your life is easy or going to be really easy. But the people in the desert should have cried out to God for help instead of crying out against God. So how do we cry out to God in a faithful way? It's nice to say that, but how do we do it? Read the Psalms. If you find yourself complaining a lot, spend time in the Psalms. See how David, even Jesus, puts those words in his own mouth, cries out to God with just complaints. We like to think that complaining is no big deal. But this story is teaching us that actions have consequences, even what we think of as small actions. And you guys in your lives, as uh, younger guys, as younger girls, as students, you might feel like you have no control and no power over your lives. 
and therefore it might seem like nothing you do matters. But this story teaches us that everything you do matters. Even small things like grumbling matters to God. So take responsibility because God's holding you responsible right now for every way you act. God cares about every little action, every little grumble, every little sin, every little good work, every little act of faith. God cares about them all and you're responsible for them all. The way you're using your life right now, the way you're spending your time right now matters. It affects a lot of stuff. It affects your heart right now. What you watch, what you read, what you intake, how you talk, all affects your spiritual and even your mental health right now. It also affects your future, what the rest of your life on earth is going to look like, and it affects your eternity. Same way that eating junk food might taste good for an instant, but then it gives you a stomach ache pretty soon after. And if you eat enough of it, you're going to be unhealthy overall. Yeah. It has short-term effects and long-term effects. It affects everything. Everything we do now has immediate and long-term effects. So don't fall into the pit of not caring. Don't think that because you're young, don't think because you don't have any authority, what you do doesn't matter. It's a lie that what you do doesn't matter. Your actions matter. Look again at verses 40 and 41 and 42 in chapter 14. Starting in 40. And they rose early in the morning and went up to the heights of the hill country, not in Texas, they were saying, here we are. We will go up to the place that the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. But Moses said, why now are you transgressing the command of the Lord, when that will not succeed? Do not go up, for the Lord is not among you, lest you be struck down before your enemies. The people want to go in, but it's too late. Their actions had consequences. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Don't think that you can put off obedience to God, put off obedience to teachers, put off obedience to parents. Your actions, your thoughts, your words matter, even how quick those actions and thoughts and words are. You wait around to do what you know is faithful. You might actually be acting unfaithfully. If you know that there is something you ought to do that's faithful and you wait to do it, you might be acting unfaithfully. I'll mow the yard tomorrow. I'll read my Bible starting tomorrow. I'll repent tomorrow. Delayed obedience is disobedience. The point of numbers is to show that just like Israel, you can have everything from God and it's still not be enough. Because all these external blessings, all these promises, all these provisions don't change a fundamental internal problem. They don't change our sinful heart. We need more than external blessing. We need new hearts. We need something that Moses couldn't give the Israelites. Moses, in this story, acts as a mediator between God and the people of Israel. Moses steps in between God and the people of Israel. God do the only reason that God doesn't destroy instantly all of Israel is because Moses reminds God 
of who he is. He's a gracious God, a forgiving God, a God who glorifies himself by showing his kindness to his people. Moses steps between God and Israel. Here's a question. Why? Here's a question for you guys. Do you think that God forgot who he was? Sienna, were you kind of shaking your head? Why do you think that God didn't forget who he was? He's God. He knows he's all wise. And he's unchanging. God doesn't change. He's not gracious sometimes and then in an instant is not gracious. God didn't forget who he was. He's actually working with Moses. He allowed Moses to remind him of what he already knew to point us to a better mediator, to a similar story with a better mediator. It happened to point us to Jesus, who's a better mediator than Moses. Jesus steps between God's wrath and God's people and takes God's wrath on himself. Jesus is put to death on the cross. He bears the full wrath of God, the full wrath of God's uh, of God for the sins of his people. God hates sin. But God loves his people so much that he would put his own son to death in their place. Jesus is a better mediator than Moses. Like Jesus, Moses acts as this intermediary, this mediator between a holy God and sinful people. But Moses doesn't change the people. After this incident, the people just keep grumbling. The people keep having hard hearts toward God. They keep despising him. We read earlier tonight the story about the, the snakes. That happens after this. The people just keep grumbling. But Jesus rose from the dead and promises to change his people's hearts. Jesus solves our sin problem in ways that Moses never could. Jesus forgives our sin through his death, and through his resurrection, he raises us to spiritual life, giving us new hearts that love God, that love his law, that appreciate all of his blessings, and thank him rather than grumble against him. Jesus changes us. Jesus grants repentance and faith. You, just like me, need more. You, just like me, need more than just to come to youth group. You need more than to hear about who God is, hear about who he is, what he expects from you. You need more than to really want to turn away from sin. Israel did that too, but it was too late. You need to be changed. So run to Jesus, the better mediator. Run to Jesus. He'll save you from the wrath of God. He'll save you from your sinful grumbling heart. Trust that he's willing and able to forgive, to change, and to save every single person who comes to him. Jesus is better. He won't leave you in your sins, wandering around to die in the wilderness like Moses. Jesus is better. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your new covenant, for the grace that comes to us in Christ that we can count on him as a better, as a perfect mediator, fully God, fully man, fully powerful and able to save us from sin, fully man so that his death was accepted in the place of us sinful men. Lord, help us to understand this. Help us to be changed by your word, by your spirit, 
so that we might turn from our grumbling and live grateful lives that glorify you in Christ. Amen. Amen. Can you had a question before we split up in small groups? Yeah. Um, how do we tell the Psalms, the safer we are. But like, so in David, like David complains about wanting wrath on his enemies. Mm -hmm. But that's more like he's avenging God's name Mm -hmm. rather than like we don't pray for wrath on our enemies. So how do we like have discernment to when like, okay, I can't necessarily of like how to righteously pray and understand and apply those kind the complaints and prayers of the psalms does that make sense yeah they're called imprecatory psalms yeah that that are praying for those things and like you said i think it's a good thing sometimes to pray for justice which means sometimes the destruction of god's enemies Uh, i think it's that that teaches us uh, it's a different context Old Covenant to the New Covenant, but uh, that it's okay, it is not only okay, it is right to pray against the enemy of God's church. So those who would bring harm to God's church, uh, it teaches us kind of how we should, what kind of posture we should have towards them. Uh, The New Testament specifically teaches that, and the Old Testament, the Bible's consistent. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when we pray those things, we're not praying that we would take action against them. Um, we're actually called to love them and serve them, give them our coat. If a soldier asks for our coat, we give them, we give it to them. We go two miles with a soldier who asks us to go for one. Um, what that looks like probably depends situation to situation. Um, does good questions be asking? And I don't know if that was a sufficient answer. Um, the more our prayers look like the Psalms, the more faithful they'll, they'll be. Because you see in the Psalms, too, even when it complains, it usually ends in praise and an acknowledgement of God. So yeah. That's kind of... Yeah, so if our, our prayers are leading to the pra- us to praise God, then I think we're in a fairly safe spot. Yeah. Uh, well, let's do...